All right. Well, uh, we are um, going to continue to march through our list of values. And so just to kind of catch us up where we are, this is our third week doing this. Um, are there eight on the list on the seven? Oh, that's a good number. We should keep it at seven. Um, or if like if we need to expand, let's go immediately like, to 12 or something. It's eight. No. Well, there goes that symbolism. Brokenness. <laughs> Get that one out of here. We don't like to talk about it. Uh, but, okay, so we're, we are going to do uh, unity or oneness tonight. It's really the same, same concept in Scripture. Um, you could say unity or oneness. I, I think oneness is good. Unity has some connotations, like some modern English connotations that are like... Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things that, that are in the name of unity that don't really bring true unity. So oneness, I like to, I like to talk about oneness because actually the, the word one and oneness actually appear more in Scripture, uh, at least the idea of um, God being one. So it's a strange... Um, so we did knowing God, fatherhood, oneness tonight, and then we'll move on into relationship. So if, we, if you can situate yourself between... Knowing God and fatherhood and relationship, um, you can see why oneness fits right here. And as we get going, I, I think you'll see um, that this is, it's hugely important. And you probably never thought about, I mean, if, you haven't, if you're unfamiliar with this list of values or if you're kind of newer around here, you probably never sat and thought about oneness, you know. Um, Oh, there is one negative connotation with oneness. There's like a there's like a, a denomination or a sect of Pentecostals called Oneness Pentecostals, and it gets into the their theology of the Trinity. Um, basically, there is no Trinity. They they deny the Trinity. But anyway, um, that's not the oneness that we're talking about. Um, we are talking about oneness, and really in four ways. I'm going to give you the four ways right now. And these are all rooted in who God is, and so it's God's oneness in himself. God's oneness in himself. And it's because God is one uh, that this, is, this comes to be a very important value in Scripture. God values oneness, and so he desires for his people to value oneness. And God doesn't just simply value oneness. He is one, all right? Um, getting ahead of myself. Okay, so there's four... We're looking at it from four angles tonight. God's oneness in himself, our oneness with God, and you could put in parentheses, in Jesus. Um, Oneness in ourselves. So oneness in God, God's oneness in himself, but our oneness in ourselves, and our oneness with one another. Our unity with one another. So God's oneness in himself. Uh, this goes all the way back. And like all of these values, you can pretty much trace them through gen- from Genesis to Revelation. That's why they're isolated and, and set apart as a, as a list of values. Because they're things that seem to keep coming up. Anytime you get in scripture, anytime you're studying who God is, trying to learn, go deeper into knowing him, 
these things are always sort of hanging around, right? And so oneness is, is one of those things. Um, you, could, you could look at... So fatherhood is easy because it's, there's a lot of metaphorical things you can use to talk about fatherhood, right? We all have fathers. There's family. So fatherhood is sort of like an object lesson to know God, right? Oneness is, um, it's a little more mystical. It's a little more uh, prone to, um, prone to like esoteric philosophy. Um, and, you know, the, the classic joke, what does the Hindu say to the hot dog vendor? Like, Make me one with everything. Um, or is it a pizza maker? I don't know. Some item, some, some street food that comes with many condiments. One with everything. Okay. Um, so oneness is, is sort of a, a central tenet of some Eastern philosophies and religions, right? That, that we just exist and everything that is, everything that exists is part of one great oneness, okay? And so you can, you can get off in that direction um, and kind of err in that way. But um, this is why who God is really grounds us when we talk about oneness because God uh, in his oneness, he sent forth his son who, who took on flesh. And the incarnation really guards us against getting lost in just kind of nothingness and the world beyond and just kind of mystical realities, mystical realms where we just cease to be and just get, right, become one with the universe. You can, you know, go... Go listen to some late Beatles songs and you'll kind of get a flavor of this kind of, <laughs> this kind of philosophy. But all the way in the beginning, okay, God says, let us make man in our image. Something is up, right? When God speaks as a plural, something's up. Um... You know, some people point to the fact that, yeah, he's probably talking about the council of gods or, you know, there's, there's angelic beings and earthly beings. But we know from the rest of biblical truth that God is somehow, in a, in a strange way, and theologians have grappled with this from day one of, of uh, Jesus walking the earth. What is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. That God is three persons, but one being. Right? He's one in three, three in one. I remember as a kid trying to wrestle with the, who's God? What, what is the relationship between God and Jesus? And what I just would tell people are like, God is Jesus and Jesus is God. I would go around saying that. God is Jesus, Jesus is God. But that's really, that's, all, that's about all you can say, right? And theologians try to describe it. Um, and they use words like usia and phusis and uh, all these kind of technical words to try and figure it out. But what we, what we have to, to, to come back to is that 
Very clearly, Scripture says that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those aren't just different masks he puts on. It's not like one person uh, you know, putting on different faces. It's three distinct persons, personalities. Right? And so God within himself as a father can operate within the characteristics of a father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is the real mystery, the central mystery of the Christian faith. Okay? But it, it, it reveals itself all the way in the beginning and all through the Old Testament. We even see glimpses of this. Right? Listen in, in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. That was the, that was the, the primary theological distinctive of the nation of Israel. We serve one God. Okay? You call it monotheism, and if you, if you want to use the technical term. But that understanding that there is a God and he is the creator, he is one. And that was the sense in which Jews really understood God's oneness. Oneness as onlyness. Does it make sense? But then when Jesus came, he started to reveal this, this fact that God's oneness, yes, he is God alone. He alone is God. There's no one like him, right? You shall have no other gods. But he came to reveal that within the one God, there is a oneness between persons. And God in himself is oneness, not solitude. He's not solitary. He's not independent. But within, somehow within God, there is a personal oneness. Or you could say a relational oneness. Paul says it like this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now wrap your mind around that. (laughs) What's he saying? That's one of the great statements of the faith. But it's, it's, it's difficult for our minds to grasp. Okay, we've got one God, and he's the Father, and one Lord. And somehow they were both involved in bringing us into being, into creating everything. Okay? So all the way in the beginning, there was Father, Son, Holy Spirit moving in unity to do this thing, to bring the world into existence and to create people in their image. Let us make man in our image. And so that brings us to the second point, our oneness with God. We were created for union with God. As we've seen, we were created to partake of who he is, to participate in who he is, is a good word for it. To participate in that oneness and to be integrated into it, all right? In 1 Corinthians 6, well, I need to back up for a second. I want to read... I meant to do this at the beginning. But now that we kind of have primed the pump, this, this would be good. I want to read John chapter 17. 
Okay? And I want you to listen because I've, I've given you the four angles of oneness. Okay? I want you to listen to, to where those pop up here in just this chapter. Okay? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Which we've ended up in John chapter 17 all three weeks, right? Knowing God, fatherhood, oneness. They're all here, right? In, in a big way. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, have my, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is like 
you need a four-dimensional model to figure out who's in who and how can you be in someone and they be in you. Right? What, is the, what are we talking about here? It's such a simple preposition, in. <laughs> oh, well, it's easy. Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. And we are in Jesus and he is in us and we are in them. It's just one word with a bunch of pronouns that John uses. So simple. Remember, remember the Gospel of John? It's shallow enough for a baby to walk in and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Right? This is, this is the, this gets into the very essence of who God is. He is one. And he wants us to be one with him. We, were, we are called to oneness with God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Remember last week we talked about how he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. In the beginning of 1 John, it says that we have seen life and our fellowship is with him in the Son and with one another. <laughs> that this is what life is. So we were created, and we were, we were created for oneness with God, but our salvation is intended to restore us to that oneness with God. Salvation is not meant to just save us and forgive our sins and so we can go on our merry way. Salvation is meant to restore that original purpose for which we were created, which is to share and partake in God. Okay? So it's not to make us good people. It's to make us partakers of the divine nature. So ask yourself, do I understand my salvation? Do I understand the fact of being saved, being a Christian, being in church? Do I understand that as having been restored to the original purpose for mankind, which is to partake of the oneness of God and to share in it? To be incorporated into the unity and the love that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this isn't just advanced, this is fundamental. Right? This is foundational. This changes the way that you live. It changes the way that you approach life. Okay, Paul says something very profound in the middle of a conversation of, of actually a rebuke. And he's rebuking the Corinthian church for continuing to mingle with prostitutes, some of them. And he says, to address the problem, he says, don't you know how bad prostitution is? I mean, there's sin, but then there's icky sin. And you guys are in the icky sins. So stop doing that. No, that's not how he addresses this sin. That might be how we would go about addressing it. You did that? Oh my goodness. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
how would it change the way that we pursue holiness and sexual purity if we started there? Not started with a sense of guilt, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't, but I did. But a sense of my body, <laughs> my body is a member of Christ. It's a part. Just like this arm is a member of my body, I am a member of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Yes, it's an icky sin. Why is it an icky sin? Because of cultural mores? No, because of oneness. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Listen, this thing called sex was created as an expression of the oneness of God. Can you believe that? That it's an expression and this this is a gross sounding word but it's true of an interpenetrating life of a life interpenetrating with another life. How do you get more one than that? Listen, this is what Paul is saying. For As it is written, the two will become one flesh. Hey, this thing that you're just doing at your own desire, at your own whim, you got to look at it through the right lens. He who is joined, now listen, he's saying don't join yourself to a prostitute. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. One in that way. One in the one flesh way. One in the interpenetrating life way. All right? It's weird. It's in the Bible. Sounds weird to us. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because you're trying to follow rules. No, because this is, gets back to the, the reason you exist. God created you with a capacity for oneness. Don't take your capacity for oneness and fulfill your own desires with it. Take that potential and that capacity for oneness and use it in the right way. And so you will glorify God in your body. What does that mean? You will indicate to the world around you the reason you exist and what a body is for. So right there, Paul says, hey, you got, we got the sin problem. We got, a, we got a pretty bad sin problem in the church. Let's bring God's values and God's principles to bear on that situation and address it from that perspective. And so he brings oneness into the conversation. And he goes all the way back to Genesis when God created man and woman. All right? Oneness. Our oneness with God. Man, you, I mean, you will never get to the bottom of, if you just do a study in the New Testament of the phrase in Christ or in him.
I've started studying that, I think, in youth group. <laughs> we, we, and I don't, think, I don't think I ever finished that study. <laughs> I'm still studying it. In Christ is a powerful, powerful concept, powerful phrase. Okay? Uh, oneness in ourselves. Oneness in ourselves. What are you talking about here? We were not created to be fractured human beings. We were created to be whole persons. And we were created to be whole persons with a heart wholly directed toward our God. And that is what constitutes our oneness with him. But first, he, in, in, as we become one with him and as he saves us, he makes us whole persons again. He brings oneness to ourselves, Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your might. God brings a oneness to our being. All the aspects of of us, here in this verse, it says heart, soul, might. In the New Testament, it adds mind. In other words, all of you, every, all, every, la- every layer of you, every level, however you want to dissect the, the human being into what different parts, all of it, the Lord, loving the Lord with all of who you are. Psalm 86 says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. What's the opposite of this? Oh, it goes on. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you with my whole heart. The opposite of this is what's described here in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? A breakdown of unity. What is it? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. What's an adulterer? It's different than a fornicator. We're getting all the big words tonight. Somebody on the side. This is two loves. Right? You adulterous people. That's what God calls Israel in the Old Testament through the mouths of the prophets all the time. Adulterous people. Why? Because they worship me and they go away and worship another God. You love your wife. Also have affections, feelings, relations with another Who's not your wife? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? 
We were created for oneness and whole oneness with God. And he's jealous. When our heart, mind, strength, soul goes elsewhere. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify. Purify is a wholeness word. Purity is 100%. We talked about that with the brownies, the infamous brownies. You don't want to eat brownies with even 0.0001% dog poop in them. Those aren't pure brownies. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Two. God's not after two. Oneness. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So that leads right into the fourth point, which is our oneness with one another. What God is doing with his people, with the individuals who wholly love him, and find oneness with him by the Holy Spirit. Union with God. Which is what we are saved for. Delivered from this present age. For wholeness and union with God. Is that when you find that, God gives you You enter a fellowship of people with whom God has oneness. And he says, so that you all may be one, even as we are one. Jesus says, I'm one with the Father, but I want you to be one with us and with each other. And that's the final outworking of it. Right? Our oneness with one another is the the most outward layer of this oneness that God shares within his own essence and that he created us out of that image to share in that oneness and we share and we find our way to it in salvation but then we find ourselves given to one another and what we pursue in our relationships and this is why it's the value what we are after in our relationships and this is a little teaser for next week relationship what we're after in our relationships is oneness unity in and around God's own oneness and unity. Okay? We're not after, listen, we're not after in our relationships. We are not after um, what's the word I'm looking for? Accommodating one another. To be a very accommodating. God doesn't, he didn't deliver us and save us and transform us and make us a new creature in order to place us in a group of people who basically just live their own lives but get this little kick called community out of their gatherings. Oh, I like community. Here's some cool friends. 
What God's after in his church is oneness. Oneness. Um, The fact that a large portion of the New Testament letters were written to address the relations between Jews and Gentiles shows how fundamental this is to the gospel. Here's a group of people that needs, the Jews needed to learn one thing about God's oneness, that it didn't only belong to them. (laughs) That God's oneness, God's election of them was meant to be an invitation to all nations to come and partake of who he is and share in his divine nature. And Israel was to be the channel through which that blessing went into the world. And it was in Jesus. But in the, in the body of Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians, the dividing wall of hostility was broken between Jews and Gentiles. And so God broke that huge wall, that wall of all walls, but he has broken every wall that divides person from person. Okay, and so God is after oneness, and he's after it at every level. Right, when we talked about church, we talked about big C church, little C church. Same thing with unity. God's after, you know, people bemoan the fact that there's denominations and church splits, and God grieves over that as well. But you, you have to realize that God also grieves over the unforgiveness that you harbor toward the person in your home group. And the gospel addresses both equally. And if we, we aren't able to see how to become one with a brother or a sister and how to allow, allow God to bring us to the end of ourselves so that unity is possible, then I don't know how he's going to work much farther beyond that in the bigger, larger scales of unity. right? Because what's wrong on the big scale all comes down to um, a breakdown of relationship and a, and a failure to, to maintain unity. And so God's disciples are marked by unity and oneness. Those who are, I mean, that's what Jesus says in that prayer, so that the world would know so they would be one in us with each other so that everyone would know. That's the, that's the purpose of God. That's what he's always wanted out of his people. Hey, come be one with me and then live out my heart in the earth so that everyone could see who I am and could come to me through you, through your example. Let your light shine before men so that men would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is what God's people have always been meant to do. That's always what his, his intention has been. And so it's no coincidence that when the day of Pentecost came, when the church was contemplating who Jesus was and they were in prayer, what's going to happen? He said to, he said to wait. And then he flew up into the sky and he said, go wait. Well, here we are. We're waiting. Jesus, we, we have given our lives to you and we have been delivered and we've been saved. What are we waiting for? <laughs> 
And it says they were all together in one accord. And then the blessing of God came upon them and 3,000 souls saw it and said, whoa, what is this? Peter got up and preached and 3,000 souls were saved because there was a group of people who had encountered Jesus who had been integrated into his life and were following his instructions and the Holy Spirit said, I see your hearts. I see that your hearts are together. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. There's a great story in uh, 1 Samuel 14. And so our oneness with one another is God's desire, but it's also the, uh, the, the way that God can work through us to reveal himself to the world. Right? Um, and this is, a great, this is a great picture of this. 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, 14. By the way, this is in chapter 13 and 15, which is Saul's two big mistakes. All right. But here's, this is about Jonathan. A lot of you know this story. Jonathan said, so they're at war with the Philistines. Um, One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Um, Jonathan said, this is verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan had a, hey, we're the people of God. And we're fighting against the enemies of the people of God. And last time I checked, God doesn't need a giant army <laughs> to, to achieve victory. So he says, it might be that if we just go over there and ask God to be with us, he might do something. All right? And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And how's the story end? They go over there, and God does something. God does something. And I'm convinced that what caused God to move and to send his spirit wasn't necessarily Jonathan's visionary revelation, but the fact that two guys could come into agreement. And God said, I like that. Everybody's in this thing for themselves. Here's a guy with the faith to go do something and another guy who says, let's go. I am with you, heart and soul. We're one in this thing. We are in one accord. You can read the rest of the story. It's great. I mean, God does, I mean, they just, he wins a mighty victory. And it becomes this source of hope a rallying cry for everybody who was scared and hiding in the caves, okay? Psalm 133 says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is 
when brothers dwell in unity. When brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head. We know that oil is a symbol of the spirit, the anointing of God. The presence of God. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. It's like the anointed priesthood. When, when, when brothers dwell in unity, it's like a priest who is anointed with the presence of God. And what is a priest? A priest is a mediator between the people and God. A priest is a, a conduit of the blessing of God into the earth. A priest is a mouthpiece for the word of God. And he says, what accomplishes the anointed priestly service is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. God looked at Jonathan and his armor bearer and he blessed them and his will and his power came rushing into the earth through the unity of those men who were united in a desire to bring glory to the God of Israel. He commands blessing. When people pursue unity in their lives around who he is and say, we are 100% sold out for, for him and for one another in, in that. God commands blessing. And that's eternal life. Eternal life is seen by the world when brothers dwell in oneness, unity. All right, so that really sets up next week nicely, right, to talk about relationship and to talk about some of the, some of the hindrances I will say this, Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, which is another great chapter on oneness, you should read it, it's where he talks about one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, 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 one God, one Father, who is in all of you. He says, uh, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so there's a sense in which We don't work to achieve unity. God has achieved unity, and we need to maintain it and surrender to it and recognize it. Right? God's done the work. It's like it's like we don't achieve oneness with God. God does it. Right? We are united with Him. But then the rest of our lives we're learning how that works out. And we're learning what needs to be pruned, what needs to die. You know, we're we're infants and we are raised and disciplined into mature adults. That happens with relationships too. When there's a person whose life has been changed by God over here and another person whose life has been changed by God over here and they say, you know what? It's time for (laughs) God's call us to live in relationship. If he's sold out and he's sold out, oneness is, it's done. All that's left is to realize that and to work it out in the particulars. And so that brings uh, the value of relationship and the process of relationship into, uh, into view. Amen? All right, so we're going to come, and I mean, this is a great uh, demonstration of oneness here. Jesus said, unless you 
eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That's a pretty stark saying. And when Jesus said that, a lot of people turned away from him and said, well, who can hear this? What he's describing is the radical oneness that our life shares with his. And we celebrate that every week. And we come and we're saying, we don't want to look at Jesus. We don't want to come to church to sing about Jesus. We want to come to church to eat Jesus, ingest Jesus. And when you take something into your body, it becomes your body. You are what you eat, right? When we come to the table, we are affirming that we are what we eat, and we want to be Jesus, so we're going to eat Jesus. Amen? We're going to receive his life into ours, and he is going to be in us. That's what he prayed to the Father. He said, I, want to, I pray that I would be in them. So let's come to the table and celebrate the fact that God has made us for oneness with himself and that we can participate in who he is. Um, and so the question that I want to leave us with as we, as we come to the table, and this is the question you can take with you tonight. Where does this value, where does this value need to touch my life? Right? Which, which of these angles are multiple? Do I need to learn more? Do I need to understand more about God's oneness in himself, the relationship that he shares from before the foundation of the world, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do I need to contemplate my oneness with him? That I am created not to just be associated with him, but to actually be caught up into his life and to be united with Christ. Do I need to understand that maybe there are places in my life that are dual, that are double, and God wants to, to eliminate there being two and create one. In Ephesians, when he talks about the Jew-Gentile split, he says God has created in Christ out of two, one new man. Are you two people? Do you have two hearts? Does God need to, to touch your heart and make it one, make it whole, make it wholly his? Or do you need to view, do you need to, Step back and see the goal of relationship and the whole point of relationship being oneness, being this wholehearted devotion to one another in the purposes of God. That's what God is after in his people. And that's what he's looking for, not because he's angry if it doesn't happen, but because he's waiting to release his Holy Spirit and bless the unity of the body. And say, oh, and pour out anointing on that so that people can see a demonstration of who he is. A real life demonstration of God. How do people see it? When we love each other. When we are one with one another. When we lay down our lives and allow ourselves, allow our own preferences to die so that we can be one with each other. Amen. I just, I'm just amped up about coming to the table tonight. I'm so excited that Jesus has prepared this meal for us, that he's invited us to eat of his body and drink of his blood. That he invites us. 
and calls us and says, come, eat, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. And drink this cup and understand that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I have moved in your life. I have forgiven sins. Not so that you could just go away feeling forgiven, but so that you could finally, because I can't abide with sin, I have forgiven sins so that you can become one with me again and not drag your sin into the Godhead. Because that's what we're created for, participating in eternal life. Sin can't dwell in God himself. And so God deals with it so that he can welcome us in. Amen? Amen. All right.